All right, how you doing? My name's Matt Barr and you're listening to episode five of Looking Sideways, a podcast where I try and uncover the most interesting stories in action sports and other related endeavours. Thanks for listening and downloading or both. And thank you if you've been in touch after the first four episodes so far. It's been really great getting feedback and hearing how well it's been going down. So thanks a lot to everybody who's made the effort to do that. I have had a few people reminding me that I've got to get better at mentioning websites, social handles and the like, which slacker that I am, I keep pretty much forgetting to do. So for the record, the website is wearelookingsideways.com where you can find the archive. There's a few on there now. You can also find all the social handles and subscribe buttons and you can leave reviews on iTunes. You can find SoundCloud links. You can find show notes. You can find imagery of the the guests and plenty more info. So yeah, have a look. So on to today's podcast, which is a really good one. This is a conversation with Oscar-winning documentary maker and snowboarder Orlando von Eisendel. I really hope I've pronounced that properly, Orlando. I've been practicing, so sorry if I got it wrong. Along with his producer, Joanna, Orlando won the Oscar in February 2017 for Best Short Documentary for his film, The White Helmets, which documents the humanitarian work done by the Syria Civil Defence. It's a really powerful piece of work, which has had a lot of publicity, as you might expect, and you can find it on Netflix. So before you do anything else, I'd probably suggest you go and watch that. Bookmark this, come back and listen to it afterwards, because it'll put a lot of what we're going to talk about in context. I'd arranged to meet Orlando earlier in the year. I'll be honest, I did see he was up for an Oscar. I've known him for a long time. I thought, oh, he'll be a great podcast guest. And yeah, he agreed to do it. And then obviously he won. So I thought he was going to cancel, naturally, because he got pretty busy. But not a bit of it. Not only did he honour the meet, which was about a week after he'd won, he was as generous with his time and answers as you'd expect him to be if you're familiar with his work, even though he was very severely under the jet lag cosh and surviving on three hours sleep a night, I think. So what a legend. We met at his offices in South London and once he'd made me a nice cup of tea, we got down to it. And yeah, it's a great chat. Naturally, we discussed the Oscar win, but we delved pretty deep into his background as a film and documentary maker. We also talked about his years snowboarding and how the early snowboarding films he made acted as a filmmaking apprenticeship, really, which ultimately led him to the career he's currently celebrated for. And one thing became clear early on. While Orlando's now moving in rarefied circles, thanks to the success of his work, yes, I did ask him about Oscar after parties and how he met Leonardo DiCaprio. For him, it's all about the work and the type of stories he can tell with the platform he now has. As you'll hear, he's an eloquent, passionate artist who just wants to make the best and most impactful work possible. There's some real gold in here, how action sports encourage creatives to become their own startups, some priceless advice for young filmmakers, as well as some great stories from the making of Virunga, The White Helmets and Skater Stan, the documentary that originally put him on the map. Have a listen and enjoy my interview with Orlando on finding hope in the worst situations on the planet. Enjoy. Orlando, how are you? Yeah, I'm tired, but but good. Happy happy to be talking to you, Matt. Well, good to see you. Um, welcome to the Looking Sideways podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, pleasure. So you're just back from the Oscars with uh, an award in your hand. How are you feeling right now? Um, well, uh, so um, that all happened about 10 days ago. Uh, I, I guess I can't quite believe it's all true. Um I mean, you know, my honest feelings are, frankly, I feel deeply humbled. Um, 
and um, and 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 also, um, you know, I think we as a whole film team, when we began this project, it was always about trying to shine a really bright spotlight on the heroes at the heart of our film, this group of Syrian rescue workers. And we've we've had such a privilege to be able to use the platform of the Oscars to do that. So I think we all feel we all feel really proud about that. Well, as you should. Can we talk a little bit about the the night itself? Because obviously that's a fairly fascinating thing to discuss. So what was it like when you received the award? We, we did you have any idea that you you might win? No, I mean we 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 decided quite early on that we we had there was just no chance that we were going to win. There's 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 various different. It's bizarre the whole world of this. There's there's betting websites where people can make money on the bets and our odds were weren't particularly favorable so we decided that you know and we've been through this before a couple of years ago so so we know what it's like to be there and and to not win so we decided that this year we were just going to try and enjoy it as much as possible and it 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 worked and we'd made that decision and so we were feeling relaxed um and then um and then they announced the name of our film um and it's bizarre you go into a kind of almost like it doesn't feel real um and it's almost like an out-of-body experience where i i mean the one memory i have is is my my partner esme you only have 45 seconds from the moment they announce your name to go up onto the stage and give us give a speech and um she wouldn't even let me hug her because she was just like just go now and say something (laughs) um but yeah no no it it was it was unreal and did you prepared your speech well we we so i mean we'd right from the beginning when we first found out about that we had been nominated for for an oscar um we'd always decided as a team that if we were ever up for a big and a big accolade of some description that of course we wanted our cinematographer a guy called Halid Khatib and and Ryde Salah who's the leader of the White Helmets to join us and to use that platform to be recognized and celebrated and talk about their work um and it was only about 36 hours later that the Trump administration announced this travel ban so during the next two weeks we tried desperately hard to to get them to to join us but in the end it just it just wasn't possible so we we felt that what would be appropriate was to read a statement from Riot, who's the leader of the White Helmets. Um, and so we'd prepared that much and a couple of thank yous. Cause that, and that was reported quite strangely, I thought. That was one of the questions I wanted to ask you, because I guess when you're part of such a high-profile event, it becomes a very reductive kind of political environment, if you like. And, for example, Time magazine, I saw, reported that as, like, film director, quotes, Koran in speech. Is, that must be strange, right? To, to, to have those gestures which come from a very well-meaning and, and, you know, generous place to be reported like that. Well, I, I think, you know, it, it was really good that lots of people actually reported about a Quranic phrase being, being read at the Oscars as a strange thing. And, you know, part of the whole reason we wanted to make this film was, was to try and break down some misconceptions and, and misunderstandings about people from the Middle East and Muslims and especially people from a place like Syria. Um, so, um, so, you know, no, no, great that people were, were, were shocked that there's a, a beautiful Quranic verse which has such sort of depth and meaning to it. Have you spoken to, is it Halid? Is that how you say it? Have you spoken to him recently? 
Well, we so the moment the moment we got backstage after after the awards, he was the the first part. We called with him within a couple of minutes and um, and woke him up actually because he'd been trying to stay awake. He was in Turkey and he'd been trying to stay awake to watch it. And I think him and his friends had, had just about fallen asleep just before the, we, our category was announced. Um, so no, we spoke to him and it was it was brilliant. And um, you know he he's he's incredibly proud and happy as well. What will it mean for that organisation then? Well, it's, you know, it, it's like, a, I think there's a couple of things. I, I think um, it's it's very easy for, for the White Helmets to believe that, you know, they've, that the world has forgotten what's going on in Syria. And, and you know, to be recognised for something like this is, is almost, it's like recognition of what they do. It's, it's sort of saying, look, we're all, the world recognises what you do. We, you know, the world hasn't forgotten about, Syria and, and what you're doing but also it, it's you know I mean I, I don't know the exact figures about how many people watch the Oscars but what I do know is that just after the award was announced the the three words the white helmets was the most googled thing um on on google which is you know that that's that's amazing and and hopefully that will translate ultimately into assistance for the white helmets so from your point of view What's it like in the lead up to the Oscars? What, as a filmmaker, what do you have to to do? What what kind of responsibilities do you have as part of that whole circus, if you like? Well, I th- I think we we looked at this as as just to try and use the, the the privilege of being there and having that media attention to talk about the issues at the heart of our film and and the White Helmets. So, you know, to talk about what's happening to Syrian civilians on a daily basis to talk about these heroic um, Syrian citizens who've all decided every day to, to not pick up a gun, to not flee the country and instead to save their, you know, their, their, their fellow Syrians. So that, that's kind of what we decided to do. It, it's a crazy process. There's a, there's a lot of media attention, um, but, um, but, you know, you just have to sort of try and, sleep when you can and uh, and and I'm, I'm very lucky I, I Joanna Natasagara um, our producer is 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 a wonderful partner to, to do these projects with what was the strangest part of the whole experience there must have been a few right oh there's there's all there's always lots of strange um things I mean I, I uh, well I, I, I don't know lots I there was definitely one night we ended up in some film producers um living room and um, and uh, Steve Tyler from Aerosmith got up and uh, sang "Walk This Way," uh, <laughs> right. which uh, which was one of those moments we were like, "Is this is this really happening?" What on a what with a band or with a, well, it was like a sort of a jam session, right? Uh, and um, and he was there, and there was a couple of other people playing instruments, and he just took to the mic and. As you do, as as you do, and, Steve and Tyler. Yeah, and we were there banging maracas and uh, try, right. trying to keep in time, but uh, wow. Uh, yeah, that's that's the kind of thing I was thinking, you know, sort of very inverted commas, Hollywood sort of thing. So what, the White Helmets itself, where where did you learn about them? So um, uh, some some friends of, of mine and Joanna's, in, in, in my case, my, my partner, Esme, and, and um, they they were working, um, they've been working on, on a, for an organisation called the Syria Campaign, um, sharing the stories of, of Syrians and their their daily lives and um they there was a video that they made us aware of of a newborn baby being pulled out 
out from the rubble beneath uh, the the remains of a three-story building that had been hit by a barrel bomb, which are these crude barrels stuffed with metal fragments and explosives that the Assad regime tosses out of helicopters completely indiscriminately. And this baby had been there for 16 hours and, and it's it's rescued and it's it's the most extraordinary bit of footage. But what what struck me and Joanna more than anything was when we found out who the rescue workers were. Like I was saying, this people just, just like me or you, um, and we found that a really inspiring story. Um, and, you know, but part of it was also that Syria is such a difficult issue to engage with. This war's been going on for so long. Um, and here was a story about heroes, a story of hope. And, and, and we felt that in, in sharing the story of the White Helmets, it might be a way to, to engage people. So how did you go about making that happen? Was that, what you know, what are the practicalities of, of making that a reality? So, it, I mean, it, it's the normal sort of filmmaking stuff of, of getting in touch with the organisation and and trying to sort of explain what you're trying to do and and building that relationship and and trust uh, until, you know, we got to a point where um, they were like, OK, fine. Well, look, you know, come in, come in January um, and um, and, you know, stay for a couple of weeks and we'll see. We'll see where we get to. So we sh- we shot this this time last year. And you shot in Turkey, is that right? Yeah, so we, so we wanted to film in in eastern Aleppo, where where the, the the kind of the team that we'd identified that we'd like to follow was was based. But at, at this point, and like I said, it was this time last year, there'd been almost no Western journalists in eastern Aleppo um, for about nine months because the last ones who who were there ended up being kidnapped and sold onto ISIS and then we've we've seen what's happened to them yeah, so yeah. so um it just would have been reckless and, and frankly a, a suicide mission and also would have put the white helmets themselves in in danger and so what we had instead was a really great opportunity uh, opportunity to collaborate with the white helmets and they invited us to do that and we worked very closely with a young white helmet called Halid Khatib um who began documenting this crisis when when he was 16 first on his mobile phone and he gradually became quite a, a, a an excellent photographer um and um he joined the white helmets were doing a a, a, a five-week training course on the syrian border in in southern turkey and he joined his colleagues doing that and the small contribution we could make was to help improve his documentary storytelling techniques um and um and then Halid went back in with the rest of the white helmets and continued to do his work of documenting their rescues which is what he does on a daily basis um except he shared the the footage with us so what you see in the film is is half his work and two of his colleagues work Fadi and Hassan and the material that we shot in Turkey and you're still in touch with him obviously oh absolutely no I mean we're, we're in we're in touch all the time yeah yeah and so what's the latest with the white helmets well it's been a for them um, it's been a really difficult couple of months because um, Aleppo fell to the regime over Christmas and there was about 150 white helmets in Aleppo, including the three main characters in our film, Halid, Abu Omar and, and Muhammad. Um, and they lost everything. They lost their homes. They lost everything that they couldn't basically carry out on a, on a bus. Um, what's extraordinary is is that since then, the majority of those white helmets that have left Aleppo have joined other centres around Syria and have continued their work. I mean, you know, but the the reality is they're still every day pulling people out of the rubble from bombs. Um, so, you know, that this, the story continues very much as it was in the film. And how do you feel about some of the 
more outlandish conspiracy theories that are circulating. You know, I saw quite a few pieces online almost saying your documentary was like a propaganda film and that it was all a NATO-funded exercise. I mean, that must be bizarre to read that, right? What do you feel about that? Well, it, it's... I mean, yes, you're right. It, it's 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 incredibly bizarre. I mean, there's there's basically been a very well-funded smear campaign for the last couple of years by by the Assad regime and its allies against the White Helmets. And I think you have to ask why. Why is there that? And effectively, it's for two reasons. The first is that every day the White Helmets are out there filming with GoPros and documenting the war crimes of the regime and its allies. And and secondly, they're breaking down this, this binary position that the Assad regime has pushed from day one of the Assad government and everyone else as terrorists. And the White Helmets... You just prove that the situation is so far from that. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, the, the kind of claims that are made online are just nonsense. I, I would say that in the last couple of years, pretty much every single credible media organisation in the world has covered the White Helmets and not a single one has given any credence to these ridiculous claims. Well, on the contrary, they've gone out of their way to debunk them, haven't they? You know, there's a Channel 4 piece where they've literally taken some of the claims piece by piece haven't they and disproved them yeah i mean they, they're just they're just nonsense and you know and frankly we we don't you know we don't even really talk about them <laughs> well bit of a segue but i think what would be interesting is if we could go back to the beginning of your career um and i obviously have known you for a long time through snowboarding probably what 15 years now at least yeah yeah my earliest memory of you as a documentary maker would be with snowboarding projects such as Winter Mission. What was the other one that you that you did? 140 then? Degrees East. Okay, that's the one. Can you tell me what you remember about those projects? Because it seems to me they were almost like your apprenticeship as a documentary maker in a, in a lot of ways, weren't they? So what were you... Can Talk us through Winter Mission. So what, what happened with that project? Well, I, I guess... Uh, so... <laughs> It's it's funny in in the snowboard world, you know. You um, the way the way you make your tiny bit of money to survive is you get sponsored, and and then um, you get a bit of extra money every time you're in a magazine or a video part. Because you were essentially a pro snowboarder, weren't you, on on the UK and European scene? Yeah, in in the small way. Uh, in a small yes, in a small way. Yes, I was. Yeah, of course. Um, and um, and. Because you get more money for for being in in a video part or a magazine, there were, I just remember there was this real incentive to learn how to take photographs of my friends and and film them, and 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 likewise, my, definitely lots of my snowboarding friends felt the same sort of pressures. Um, and so because of that, you know, I remember buying the, some photographic equipment and and some video cameras um to, to to do that and and winter mission effectively was was taking that idea the neck to the next level and trying to make you know use some of the very basic skills that i had of trying to make a film i mean in reality in that one i i teamed up i basically organized this really interesting trip and teamed up with a professional filmmaker called ben hall who um who directed that project and and, and i produced it and actually you're right it was a real i learned an enormous amount from ben and seeing how someone actually puts together a film and a story and films things and it was a it was an ambitious trip wasn't it if i remember brazil california utah maybe yeah something like that yeah and it, i seem to remember as well it did have political undertones to it because it's probably around gulf war time right it, it was i i mean i i guess i would look back and probably um cringe a little bit about trying to stick in 
political undertones in a ultimately a very hedonistic snowboard trip. Yeah, well, there is an inherent contradiction. There really is. But one, I think one, me and, of, one of which I've been guilty myself <laughs> over the years. But I think me and Ben felt so incensed about that war at the time that we were doing this. We we're like, well, maybe there is some way we can put something in this film but uh I, if i watch it probably now i'd probably hang my head yeah but you can't be embarrassed about that stuff it's it's how you learn isn't it yes it is exactly uh, and then the second trip 140 degrees east so that so that was um I, i'd i think I, i'd found that part of the snow one of the elements of snowboarding i love more than anything was the travel side of it and um you know going to new countries and meeting new extraordinary people um, and so that film was really based around picking a load of awesome places that look really interesting and trying to, you know, trying to snowboard in them. And so we went to Japan and India and Thailand and, um, and China. Um, and then we filmed that we filmed the, this kind of crazy road trip across those countries. So what are your standout memories from those trips? Well, one one of them was the entire sort of end of the film. The kind of climax was meant to be going to the Himalayas in India and riding bottomless powder and paying for a helicopter to do some heliboarding. Is that up in Kashmir? Um, it was in a place called Manali, which okay. is in, I think, um, Uttar Pradesh. Right. But, uh, but we got there and there'd been a freak heat wave two weeks before and all the snow had melted. And so we drove for like, you know, two days to the mountains and there was basically little patches of of hardened Ouch. slush yeah yeah that does happen doesn't it on those trips have you watched them recently uh, no i haven't I, do you know I, I i'd love at some point to my my girlfriend keeps threatening to to watch them so at, at some point i'm going i'm going to, to have to watch them again and then chronologically i'm probably skipping ahead quite a lot but the other snowboarding related project i wanted to ask you about was we ride which was a great project and that was so that's a history of snowboarding a cultural history of snowboarding if you like isn't it that you did through your current company, Grain Media. So tell me how that came about. That that came about through um, a, um, a guy called Les Seddon Brown, in, uh, in the, who was a snowboarder um, in the British scene, and he, and he was working with um, an, an energy drink company called Burn, who wanted to do a, a kind of a snowboarding film about, um, I think, about snowboarding's history to a degree. But they had slightly different ideas to how how it ended up. Um, and, um, I mean, you know, for, for us, it was a, it was an honor to be able to try and distill snowboarding's vast history into, into 90 minutes. I, I would say it was, it was a really challenging project. There's so many different directions this could go in and it was never going to be the kind of film that would please everybody because ultimately in 90 minutes, you can only tell a certain number of stories. And so we ended up trying to pick the ones that we felt did have a key, did play a key part in telling snowboarding's history, but also they were stories that were interesting in their own right because they had conflict and they had heroes and villains. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know. I think I think some people liked it. I think probably others didn't feel it was the story of snowboarding that, that they knew. I think it's just, it's strange. That kind of thing's a bit political, isn't it? I actually remember when you were making that film, I was in the States working with a snowboarding brand and that I was at lunch with the, the marketing guys and they were talking about that project and they were quite they basically said oh they've asked us for footage and we're not going to help them and I remember being fairly shocked by that and and the the reason they gave was well what right have they got to tell that story did you come across that a lot that kind of thing 
we we did the very the first time we reached out to anyone pretty much everyone said that to us and it normally took quite a bit of explaining very strange attitude it's a really strange attitude i do i understand it from the sense that they're you know the people that have been involved in snowboarding for a long time feel ownership over it and they want that story to be told i guess by people that understand the scene intimately um you know while 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 i'm a much younger snowboarder technically um we you know as a company we've been involved in snowboarding for for years i grew up as a as a snowboarder so and i think when we started to explain that and that we were trying to do this right eventually pretty much everyone we approached wanted to be in it it took a long time i think the the key thing was when terrier said i you know i believe in what you guys are trying to do and i want i want to do it then suddenly everyone from sean white to jake burton wanted to be involved as well what was the have you got good memories of making that obviously it sounds like it was challenging but what were the good parts of that project well i i remember it being incredibly difficult from a time perspective because at the same time I was out making um, another fe- a feature documentary we made called Virunga, and so on one level I was in living in um, in Cong in Eastern Congo in in um, in East Africa, and then coming back and going on this road trip trying to f- interview snowboarders. And I remember there was some serious cognitive dissonance in uh, in switching between there and California and talking about snowboarding. Yeah, quite a contrast. Well, that's probably a good point to bring the next question up which is I'd like to know what point you changed your interest really started broadening your interest because as I said earlier we were part of the same community for a long time and then I remember when you set up Grey Media which I'm guessing was probably about 2002 maybe is that about it was right about, it was te- I think this was our 10th year so, so okay. 2000 and, oh, right. so so later 2007 yeah, yeah yeah right did you just decide that there was more to life than snowboarding and you wanted to try and find projects that that were a little bit more important and interesting is that almost how it came about sort sort of i mean i i i think my snowboarding kind of career came to an end when i i had a series of bad injuries and decided that the knees the the, the knees the the arm i'm half my arm you can see the big scar that runs up it um, and I, there was a particular thing where I basically knocked myself out and came to, and I, I couldn't see for about five minutes, and that was a, that was a bit scary. What happened there? Oh, I, I don't know. We were riding a, a kicker, and I was trying, I think, set backside sevens, inverting them, and basically just landed on my face, as, as you do. Yeah. Um, and um, five minute concussion will, will do it though. Ex- exactly. Um, and um, I, at the same time, I was. I think I just started a master's in um, in anthropology and development and I'd, I'd already done a, a degree in anthropology. So I, was, I had a real interest in in um, in other parts, other cultures and other ways of life. And um, I, I decided I wanted to try and focus my filmmaking on those types of stories. And I went down a path. Well, we we started making originally we set up grain. We won this commission to make um, kind of youth culture for youth culture content for the extreme sports channel but i i quite early on started segueing into telling documentary stories about other things and um i did a lot of journalistic investigations and what what ended up happening on those is that there would tend to be a sort of injustice that you as a journalist would sort of try and uncover and try and bring someone to justice could you could you 
dig a little deeper on that then. So give me an example of a type of project, like an, an investigation that you would have been working on then. Sure. Okay. So, so earlier ones were, there were, we made a film called Hot Chocolate, all about the role of the, um, the chocolate trade effectively in, in prolonging a, a civil war in, in Ivory Coast. Or there was another one about a lake in Ethiopia that was being really badly polluted by various different industries. Um, so it was in making those that that kind of I think taught taught me how to tell a documentary story. But what happened with those films is that they were very they were very sad and dark and difficult films to make. But often making them, we'd come across really inspiring, amazing people. Who's there wasn't room in our film to tell their story, but I was always interested about why those stories weren't being told, or I wasn't watching them so much on the news back home. And then one day picked up a newspaper and there was a story about a skateboard school in Afghanistan called Skaterstan. And um, it it was like, it was all those stories that I'd wanted to try and tell. It was a story of hope. Uh, It was positive. It was optimistic. And then the other fascinating thing was it brought my whole love of action sports together. Tied two very disparate worlds into one project. Exactly, Matt. And... um, and then we went and did it and we had very little money and we made a little short film. But what was really fascinating was how picked up it became and it, it became very popular online. And I, I guess it proved to me that there was an appetite for positive stories from, from places that you really don't often hear positive stories from. So, so good point to talk about Skate Stand. So how did you fund that one? So that that was funded by it was organised by Dazed and Confused magazine and Diesel, the clothing brand, had basically given them some money to tell for, for a couple of different filmmakers to tell stories about youth culture, and um, and I'd already found the skate stand story and I when I saw there was a someone had forwarded an email and said, would you like to apply for this this money? Um, I sent that idea for this film and, and and somehow won it and it was it was it was a very very small amount of money it basically paid for our flights and the film stock um and me and franklin dow who who's who's the cinematographer i've worked with ever since uh we you know we did it completely for free we just paid for what we could yeah i watched the video diaries oh right <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> well you just look young and and you do look not inexperienced, that's the wrong word, but you definitely look fresh-faced. Green, yeah. Green might be the, <laughs> might be the way of, of putting it. I'd say that was fair. <laughs> um, so, that, But that was huge success, right? I mean, it was, it was brilliant. It, it was everywhere. And you won awards for that. It was in film festivals. You won documentary awards. Did that give you the, the, the notion that, okay, there is a, you know, there's, uh, this is the direction I should, I should follow with this? It, it definitely made me want to look at those types of stories so that definitely when you're sort of looking in online or in newspapers for the kind of people that that inspire you um it it was those sorts of people doing positive things people trying to make change in difficult places and and actually it's what ultimately led led us on to to Virunga um that was a story I, I, I was making a film in Sierra Leone and I picked up a newspaper just randomly, and there was a story about this um, this this national park in eastern Congo called Virunga National Park. And there was in this in this newspaper there was pictures of volcanoes firing lava and gorillas. And it, I'd never even heard of this place, and it sounded just like Jurassic Park. And the story was about this group of rangers who work at the park trying to rebuild 
that part of the country after 20 years of war. And that was this positive story that just felt, you know, something that we had to go and tell. A quick aside on, so when you choose a project, the theme, as you alluded to earlier, a common theme does seem to be, yeah, you're looking for an extraordinary story, but you're also looking for individual stories as well. Is that, is that something you actively look for in a project? So when you saw Virunga, you, that this, you saw the scope for that, that almost dual investigation, if you like? No, I think it's all, ultimately it's always about the, the, the human story, the, 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 the characters. And, and I, and I think more and more it's about finding people that, that, you know, not, not only inspire you, but, but, so inspire you so much that make you want to be a better person in your own life and i think when you when that's what we as a film team all universally feel about a particular story and a, and a place and people that's when we know that it, it feels right so let's talk about Varunga then so that was a year was it that you spent out there so we filmed it over two years um but spent a year on the ground living in in the park yeah and how were you living in a tent um, on the top of a sort of a, a, a jungle hill, uh, very very simply. I mean, living just like everyone else lives in the park. That's how yeah. the rangers live. And how big was your team on that project? So it was. I mean, it was tiny. It, it took us a it took us a year before anyone was even sort of gave us any money. So the first year was it was me alone with a with a camera. And I, I mean, I say me alone. It was me from from this end. It was me alone. I mean, I worked with with um, with people in. in in the park itself and you know other local people um but then after a year um I, I brought a we brought an assistant out patrick vernon and then right towards the very end when we finally had some money and a, and a, and a bigger film team um we had a cinematographer and uh, come out to, to help get some of the bigger bigger shots but a very a skeleton crew for for the majority of the filmmaking process so initially you financed it through grain in, it, initially through grain and through a very small grant at the very beginning, yeah. And then as you were on location, the story began to develop, didn't it? So this, yeah, so this started as a positive story about rebuilding Eastern Congo. And um, we'd only been there you know, a week or two and the rangers <laughs> said, okay, yeah, well, you know, that story sounds great. Well done. Uh, but you should really, I, we think the bigger story is about this oil company from your country that's... Um, that's you know exploring for oil here illegally and you should look into them so so the story took this this u-turn very quickly and became something quite different well, and for the journalist in you that must have been exciting right yeah well exciting i i, I would well also say daunting yeah. and ter and terrifying um i mean the park you know that they'd already been looking into what this company was doing and so we kind of teamed up with um with the rangers who were doing that work and some of the local civil society members who'd also been doing that very risky, brave work. Um, and then we kind of worked together to, to keep digging. And where did you get your extra finance from then? Because you said as it developed, you got more money and you were able to, to develop the project. So how did that come about? So that just there was a group of, I mean, there's, there's a really fantastic organisation in the UK called BritDoc who, who helped fund... Uh, documentaries um they were they were instrumental in finding pulling together various different foundations who support environmental issues or human rights issues um and then there was a couple of individual donors who helped us and you know a variety i mean it was like a patchwork of different um organizations that helped make this film possible is it often like that i think in the independent documentary world it's 
the, I would say the vast majority of projects are put together by, you know, you, you, money's always hard to get. Yeah. So it's you, you end up finding it from various different sources. Yeah. Is that Joanna's role in your partnership? So, I mean, Joanna, yes. I mean, I, I should give Joanna well, enormous I was going to ask you about Joanna, obviously, because clearly you work very closely together and have done for a long time. So jo- so Joanna actually, her initial role on Virunga was, wasn't as the producer. It was um, this organisation BritDoc put us together because Jo, as well as being a, a, an amazing producer, she's she's also what's known as, as an impact producer. And that's somebody who whose role it is to take film um, that have the potential to have social impact in, on, on the ground. And so Jo got involved to try and, have you know use our film to do that it just turns out that very quickly it was so obvious that there was a producer sized hole in this project because up until then i'd I'd been kind of doing myself but really was so involved in what was going on on the ground i was doing an incredibly bad job of it so don't plug those those big leaks (laughs) but when you were on your own filming so how how did you were you just doing it on the fly were you just following the story as it developed yeah i mean every day you know, the the film began with a lot more characters than actually ended up in the in the final film. Um, so it was kind of every day following different people and what they were doing and how that tied together into this bigger idea of what the story of of the film was. And what equipment did you use for that? So very basic, cheap equipment. Um, the majority of that film is shot on a Canon Seven D, um, and then as we got financing towards the later stages we shot on a canon c300 which is a better camera and then some of the bigger more epic scenes are filmed on a, a sony f5 camera i re-watched it last night actually because i knew we were going to be talking and you know the, the thing that comes across is it looks dangerous the first scene in particular where you're walking with the rangers and suddenly there's gunfire and you know you go to the poachers camp how scary was it I mean, Matt, ter- terrifying. I, 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 there's, there's moments making that film that I've never been more scared in, in my entire life. Um, and, um, but you know, you draw, you draw strength from the people around you. And um, whenever I would get scared, the, you know, the Rangers would always be like, "Come on, pull yourself together. Stop being such a chicken." Um, their, their bravery is, is, their bravery is, is amazing. extraordinary. Yeah. And you know, I always had to, you always have to check yourself. I'm a, I'm in a very privileged position as a foreigner. I could go, you know, I, I could leave the next day if I ever chose to. And, and they can't. And, that, and they've been living with this for 20 years. And, you know, that's you draw strength from, from their bravery, ultimately. Is there a moment that stands out when you think back? In terms of in terms of what, for the, the scariest yeah. stuff. I mean, there's there's so, there, there was there was a lot. I, there was um, I mean, there's a moment that's in the film. Um, where this this rebel group, the M23 rebel group, um, was was basically moving south very quickly, and we all knew that within the next sort of couple of hours, it was going to hit the park's headquarters. And just sitting, waiting for that to happen, you know, just the tension rising and rising amongst everyone. And then when it d- did happen, there was an enormous sort of firefight for about three days. That was terrifying. So the other, I mean, I've got to ask the question really, Virunga, um, a little bit glib probably after what we've just been talking about. So how did Leonardo DiCaprio get involved? 
So we um, we just we launched this film completely independently, at, and we'd screened it at the the Tribeca Film Festival, and then we'd screened it at another festival called Hot Docs. And at Hot Docs, um, uh, a Netflix executive had had seen the film, and had shown had basically ended up getting in touch with Leonardo, and saying you need to watch this film. And um, he saw the film, and a couple of days later. We didn't know any of this. It's a couple of days later, me and Joanna got this email from someone called Leonardo DiCaprio saying, I've just seen your film. I really, really like it. What can I do to help? And it took us a while to, to actually believe it was it was him. Must have been a few high fives around the office though. Well, right? it, was, it was crazy. And we were on the road at this point. It was it was bizarre. But um, we, we responded and said, look, you know, the, the thing you can do to help is to join the film team. Um, and, um, you know, thankfully, thankfully he did. Did you have Netflix distribution before that? No. So so Netflix, like I just said, they saw the film at the Hot Dog Film Festival. And um, thankfully, uh, at the end of that screening, um, the Netflix exec had gone up and spoken to Joanna and said, seen your film, really interested, let's keep talking. Anyway, we kept, we kept talking and eventually did a, you know, they decided to take it on and and they gave it a global launch about six months later, which was fantastic. How important was that? Because that's the di- obviously for artists, the work is one thing, but real distribution is, is really the challenge, isn't it? To get a platform, to get your story out there. Was that the moment that things changed? It was, well, so like with White Helmets, this, this film had a, you know, it was it had a, an issue at the heart of it that we deeply cared about. You know, this this place, this park, this very special part of our world was being threatened by this oil company. And we wanted everyone to see this film because there was a real, this was like a really precedent-setting case. If if a an oil company could destroy, you know, a world, a UNESCO World Heritage Site, it sort of said what, what else on our planet was is sacred. So we believe that the fight at the heart of the film was really a really important one and there was you know tens of thousands of people's lives at stake ultimately um so like you say the most important thing is to get eyeballs on it and netflix in today's world is the biggest distributor going they'll you do know, that they the, today netflix is in 190 countries in just under 100 million homes um and the film lives there forever it doesn't just play one night and disappears it's there forever for anyone to watch so it was it was game-changing so for people that haven't seen the film, how has the story ended? The story's ended really positively, actually. Um, the oil company left and they decided after after the Oscars, after Leonardo DiCaprio, after Netflix, it just wasn't a fight worth worth having anymore. So they so they pulled out. Um tourism has gone up. If if you've seen the film, you should now go on holiday there because because it's it's safe. Um, and you can go and you can meet all the people that are in the film because they're all still working there. Um, and um, so, you know, the park's doing brilliantly and it's it's pushing forward all these really incredible hydro scheme projects and development projects. So it's very positive. And how are the people that are the stars of the film? How are they? What they're, are they up to now? They're, they're great. They're all still, well, so Emmanuel, Rodrigue and Andre, who are all Virunga Park Rangers, they're all still there doing doing their work um and melanie who's the journalist in the film is um she's pursuing all sorts of different projects um and um, and continuing her work as a as an investigative journalist you must be proud though well we're 
that we I mean, I'm definitely, I'm very proud of, of, of our small role in all of this. Um, I mean, there's obviously, you know, it, the film fitted into a much bigger campaign with lots of different organisations fighting for, for the same goal. So, you know, I'm proud of our, our part in all of that. Um, yeah. Well, I'd like to find out a little bit more about your methodology, if that's the right word, if that's okay which is a good point to find out a little bit more about Grey Media as well. So you said you started Grey Media in 2007. We and you said you'd done a master's in anthropology and we've discussed the the you know the hands-on apprenticeship as a as a filmmaker if you like. Did you do any formal training as a filmmaker? Did you go to film school? No, neither. Ne- <clears throat> so I so me and um a, a skateboarder called John Drever started Grain. Um and he'd had a very similar sort of trajectory to me in the skateboard world um neither of us studied film uh we kind of up the sports that we loved kind of taught us it and and in some ways i think action the action sports community is a really great quite re- reasonably safe spaces to learn creative um techniques well they encourage as you mentioned earlier they encourage you to be your own startup don't they because you have to find a way of making it work and financing it absolutely and and also i think you know in if you just start in the the wide open world trying to be a photographer or a filmmaker or 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 a writer you are the tiniest fish in a massive ocean and at least within the communities of of the sports you are you know you're still a tiny fish but it's it's a it's a pond rather than an ocean and that and that helps and you can that, find a voice you can find a voice a lot you know easier and not a lot it's still difficult yeah but um but you can find a voice and then you know hopefully a couple of years down the line when you've you've sort of become a bit better you can go out into the wider ocean and um you're not at the very beginning anymore so what kind of projects were you working on when you began grain You've mentioned a couple, obviously, but how did you pay the bills? So we, so we, um, we basically, we were, we were trying to, me and John met and we decided to try and do a project together. And it was going to be a project about skateboarders in the Middle East. And we took it to all the TV channels and half of them were like, well, this is way too silly and skateboarding, not interested. And then the action sports TV channels were like, this is way too serious. (laughs) You know, why, why can't it be about like, you know, someone doing a, the biggest air ever in Brighton or something like that. Um, but the Extreme Sports Channel, while they didn't like our idea, they said, we've got a TV series that we're looking to commission. Would you guys be interested in in putting a proposal together? And what was that then? It was called Gen X. Uh, and it was a, a kind of magazine show. Every episode was half an hour and it was made up of five five-minute segments. Um, anyway, so we went away and we put together a proposal and somehow won it. And within overnight, we went from working out of a bedroom in my mum's house to having to get an office and try and learn how to actually do things a bit more professionally. So, what were those films? They were well. They were they they we, the the kind of brief was Top Gear for action sports, right? Classic. So, um, so we'd uh, it it was like it, you wouldn't ever just go and cover a competition. You'd go to a competition and then you'd find an interesting concept to to cover it so when we covered like the british championships the concept was the whole film was filmed from a helmet camera right and it was like a rip-off of the um prodigy video for smack my bitch up yeah yeah Uh, it was that it was that kind of thing so we got to be really creative and have fun um and try and you know do things slightly differently 
And did you balance the early grain years with commercial stuff and then projects that you were passionate about, like the, the, the things you've already talked about? It, it, took, a, it took a while. Um, it took a while because we were so busy for a long time. I mean, just trying to make that show was almost like seven days a week for an entire year because we didn't we hadn't learned formally so we were making so many mistakes and everything was taking doubly as long as it should have done um but it, but about two years later um after various different advertising projects that's when john decided he wanted to focus on on scripted and drama projects and i decided i wanted to just do documentary projects about stuff i, I cared about and is that still how it breaks down in grain more, more or less i mean we, we've we've grown a bit um, and I guess we have sort of free arms. We we kind of do documentary and and television stuff, like factual television stuff. We do drama projects, and then we do some advertising stuff as well. As a documentary maker, who would you say your main influences are, if any? I mean, do you, do you have any main influences? I mean, absolutely. There's there's so many <clears throat> amazing documentary makers. Um, out there i mean what what's what's funny is often for particular projects i then delve into you know the the people the the filmmakers making stuff in that particular area i but there's you know there's a documentary maker called james longley i've massive fan of, of his work it's very sort of beautiful and manages to tell documentary stories in a in a in a dramatic way that feels you know you feel like you're in a in a drama can you name one of his recent he, films? He made it. Well, this is probably one of my favourite documentaries ever made. It's called Iraq in Fragments. It's just a story of three different people from different parts of Iraq, um, but it's just woven together very, very beautifully and powerfully. You're almost an invisible presence in your films, in contrast to some of the documentary makers, where the the documentary, like for example, Nick Broomfield, where his role, his presence, is is almost the subject is that a conscious decision to take a back seat it's it's definitely up to date it definitely has been in most things we've made because it just feels that the story is it's not it's not my story it's not our film team story it's the story you know of the, the people in the film and certainly even with white helmets we went one step further and we the interviews are they look directly into the camera lens because it felt that was the way to best get across them talking directly to the viewer and not through an intermediary. How do you gather that audio? Like, is it just because in, in Vrunga, it's, as you say, it's slightly different. In Skaterstan, it's voiceovers. Do you, do you tend to do to camera interviews or audio interviews and then take it away and use it separately? It, to it totally, it, it's, it's different and it depends on who the people we're interviewing are. So in, with Skaterstan, <clears throat> because they were children, it felt that the way to make them most at ease was just to do audio only interviews where ultimately you're just sitting there, there's a microphone, but it's, you, it's not attached to you. Just a conversation. It's just a conversation. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, with, with Virunga, it was, it was again, different, you know, and, and White Helmets, it was very much looking directly to camera interviews. You've met some incredible characters. Uh, anybody that has particularly impressed you with, with the way they've handled what they're going through? I think, I think, um, you know, if I, if, if I was to take away, I guess a kind of overarching element from, from the films, from a lot of the films that, that, that we make, it's um you know the the 
especially with the the kind of news cycle that we have today, you are bombarded with so many negative stories about how destroyed and how depressing our world is. And I think the thing I always take away personally from the projects we work on is that we meet the most incredible people who ultimately remind me, and, and I think I can say us as a film team, they remind us that, you know, there is hope. There is hope for, for humanity going forwards. And I, I think that's what, that's what makes us keep one, you know, makes us continue to keep wanting to tell these stories and share them with, with audiences. So have you got an idea about what your next project is going to be? Or yes. Are you, or, or are you due a bit of time off? <laughs> I know, I know, at some point I need to have a, have a rest, but um, th there is actually, and um, I, I, I can talk around it rather than tell you all of it, but it's, um, you know, we, we, we spent years telling stories about other people going through, through trauma. Um, and there's a story very close to my own family um, that it feels it's the most honest thing to do next is to tell a story closer to home. A documentary. This one's a documentary, yes. Do you, could you see yourself ever getting into scripted features? Yes, I mean, we're working... You know, I, I think it's for us, it's about what is the best medium to tell the particular story. So if it's a present-day unfolding real-world story, then it feels like it has to be a documentary. If it's a story which has perhaps happened in the past... Um, and you couldn't tell it in a documentary way, then, you know, a scripted narrative project is is absolutely the right, feels right. Um, um, so, um, so yes, I mean, you know, we're working on a variety of scripted projects too. Okay, so I've got a few little snippets that I always ask people in these podcasts. What was the last work of art that you enjoyed? I know you mentioned the documentary earlier, but it's more a general question. I mean, it could be anything. It could be a book, it could be a piece of music. Anything stands out from, from recently? That you've listened, that you've seen recently, or listened to recently. I'm a um, I'm a big fan of um, an artist called Richard Moss, who does extraordinary art projects, of, often in in really difficult places, and uses interesting medium uh, in in sort of from film to photography to to kind of shine a light on a subject that maybe we all thought we knew about but does it in such an original way. So um, he, you know, his, his, his current project is about the refugee crisis, but he's used a, this army grade infrared camera to pick people out and you get, the imagery is just extraordinary. It's like you're looking through the, the eye of the predator or terminator, Wow! but it's, but it's real people. And his, a previous one was he went to Eastern Congo and he took photographs again with army grade um, film stock that it was basically used in the Vietnam War to show where enemy, enemy troop positions were because all the foliage turns to purple instead of green. And so what he's ended up with are these photographs of like rebel groups in Eastern Congo or refugees or, or you know, but they're surrounded by pink instead wow. of green. And it's extraordinary. Yeah, and it, it looks like a it. fantasy world. And it just sort of challenges all your perceptions about a, a situation you thought you might know about. Okay, I'll put a link to that in the in the show notes. Sounds like it's something worth checking out. How about the last good book that you read? So I'm reading a, a book that um, that maybe isn't everyone's cup of tea, but it's by an author and a film critic and someone from the film industry called Mark Cousins. And he's written a book called The Story of Film, which is effectively just a history of cinema. 
but uh, it's just written. It it's it's not maybe what would be the traditional history of cinema taught in 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 a film school. It's the history of cinema from around the world and how someone in Senegal and their film had had influence on the the way cinema progressed as much as maybe Alfred Hitchcock or you know um taking or, a more global view yeah and it's fascinating and it's just written so well and fun and I'm 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 really jet lagged at the moment so I'm every night I'm reading till, it till about four in the morning what tips would you offer to like a young filmmaker that was listening to this that was that was passionate about documentary and, and wanted to you know follow the kind of career that you've had so um good question um it, it's I think one of the really interesting things about right now is, especially with, with documentaries, is that the barriers to it are, have been really lowered by the very fact that an iPhone or a Samsung Galaxy or whatever is, you know, is is way better quality than the stuff that we were using 10 years ago when we began making films. Um, so almost, you know, most people can go out there tomorrow and and make a documentary if they wanted to. <clears throat> I would say the other thing, and this is probably the most important bit of a advice that you could give anyone wanting to forge any sort of career in, in the film industry is that you just have to be persistent you've got to be really tenacious and you've got to keep being motivated and and you'll be knocked back left right and center and that's normal i mean i you know i get knocked back all of the time even today but that's that's normal and but if you keep trying and keep pushing eventually people will start to to give you jobs and um, you know and listen to your film ideas and, and what have you. Yeah, it's the old the harder I work, the luckier I get thing, isn't it? Um, okay, well I've got I'm going to wrap it up because uh, we're closing on on an hour, and I think you've done amazingly well because when you jet lagged <laughs> and you've been up on living on three hours sleep for the last two months. Um, so hopefully this isn't like too much of a a full on question for jet lag. But do you suffer from self doubt? with these projects you know do you feel because obviously you're taking on quite a responsibility to the stories that you're telling and the the people that you're meeting along the way how difficult is it at points to to get beyond that well i i wish i wish the answer to this question was no <laughs> i don't uh because it would save save me and everyone who works with me and our film team you know loads of um less a lot less stress but the the answer is uh, you know i'm, I'm full of self-doubt and all the time and I, and I think I think ultimately that's healthy it it keeps you pushing it keeps you thinking every single decision that you make in trying to make a film it makes you think them all through um um yeah and you know and and ultimately there's all I guess with the films we do that there's real response we feel real responsibility to the people in them that we're going to do the best job possible for them and to, to share their story in the right way um, and that adds that adds a certain pressure too. So, yeah, doubting everything. Well, Lando, that's been brilliant, and uh, thanks very much. Thank you, Matt. Great to talk to you. How good was that? Proper legendary stuff from Orlando, especially considering how bad his jet lag was. What a trooper! His passion and generosity of spirit came shining right through there. I thought it's a nice one, Orlando. Appreciate you coming on the show. Although I did forget to ask him where he'd go snowboarding if he only had one more chance, which was a schoolboy error on my part, because I reckon he would have had a really good answer for that one. So maybe next time. 
As ever, thanks very much for listening to or downloading the podcast or both. You can help me spread the word by leaving me a review on iTunes or sharing the thing on social media. If you go to the website www.wearelookingsideways.com, you'll find subscription buttons, links to leave reviews on iTunes, all the social media links. You can get hold of me there with any suggestions for future guests or feedback. At the minute, future guests planned are Big Martin legend Xavier Delarue. I've got Eski Britain. I've got GB Park and Pipe performance director and ex-Olympian Leslie McKenna. I've got Brusty, who's a filmmaker and snowboarding legend. And I've got plenty more planned. So keep an eye out for those. Thanks very much. And until the next time, thanks for listening. See you later.